At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. You know, in our culture, we, uh, we love rags-to-riches stories. They infiltrate our movies, our entertainment, our books, our media. Uh, it often seems we love the stories that tell us from, about somebody who started at the bottom and now they're here, right? Now they're, they're front and center, maybe through their talent, their effort, a stroke of luck. They achieve some sort of greatness, popularity, money, fame, whatever it is. But we, we love those stories, and we love to share and herald those stories. And one of the stories that uh, in my hometown that we love to tell is the story of LeBron James, right? I'm from Akron, Ohio, and I grew up there um, for a chunk of my life, and it's where my family's originally from, and in Akron, Ohio, we love LeBron James, not just because he's the greatest basketball player in history, so you can, we can argue about that after church if you want, um, but, but because he has one of those stories, right? He was one of those guys that grew up on the streets of Akron, that was at the bottom, that struggled through his life And who through his talent and his effort has achieved greatness in the arena of basketball. And when you go to Akron, LeBron is celebrated. Not only is he celebrated, he's worshipped there. We named streets after him. We've hung banners on sides of buildings with his face. After the 2016 championship, I was in Akron, Ohio, and I gathered with 30,000 people in the city to watch LeBron show up for two and a half minutes with the trophy. We waited two hours to see him with a trophy for two and a half minutes. That's how much we love LeBron James. And we love to share his story in my hometown. We talk about LeBron all the time. We love those sorts of stories. But the sort of stories that we don't often like to talk about as much are the stories where someone goes from riches to rags, where we feel like potential is wasted or lost or ruined. We celebrate and tell the stories of people like LeBron, but we're not often as quick to share the stories of people that struggle or challenge or don't quite reach their potential. I was thinking of LeBron in contrast to another high school-aged phenomenon, a man named Joe Hammond. Joe Hammond is one of the most famous and talented street ball players in the history of basketball. He played in the late 60s and early 70s, and he was phenomenal. Uh, he honed his skills on uh, New York's famous Rucker Park and would pray yearly in the tournaments that were there. His legend still continues to this day. They say that Joe Hammond scored 50 points in a game against Dr. J, Julius Irving, on a, street, on a game one summer in 1970. They say he scored 82 points in a game. He's legendary and well-known among street-level basketball players. 
But his story is often one of tragedy. Early on in his life, he was offered a, he was drafted by the Los Angeles Lakers and offered a contract to come and play in the NBA, and they would pay him $50,000 as an advance for joining the team. He was that level of talent. Ultimately, Joe Hammond was turned that down. Later, he would be approached by the ABA and offered a three-year contract where over the course of the three years, he'd be paid nearly $100,000. But again, he turned down the opportunity and potential. Joe Hammond, in his day and age, was wrapped up in the life of the street during his time and had gotten into dealing drugs where he was making significant money. And the MBA and the ABA were not as attractive to him in his young life life. And he turned down the opportunity to play basketball professionally. Eventually, he got up, got caught up in drugs himself and was caught dealing and was sentenced to 11 years in prison as a young man. Over the rest of his life, he would spend time living on the streets, in and out of jail, struggling back and forth. And even by his own admittance, if you look up and read stories about him, recognizes the incredible potential that he had that ultimately resulted in many ways in a life that some would deem ruin. While we celebrate stories like LeBron, when we hear stories like Joe Hammond, we don't always know how to relate to those sorts of stories. Different emotions raise within us. When we hear them, it forces us sometimes to face the reality of the challenges people face in the world, to consider what was lost, what could have been, to deal with the reality and destruction that comes when we embrace sin. Too often in our world, we only focus on the upward turns of life and celebrate those that ascend the mountain. Yet those who often face the downward turns of life, the descent into the valley, we struggle to relate to. But those stories have things to teach us as well. And what the Bible calls us to when we encounter those sorts of stories is to embrace the pathway of lament. We've been in this series for the last few weeks through the book of Lamentations, and the book of Lamentations is written in the wake of a community that experienced a descent into the depth of the valley. If you're new or just joining us, quick background on Lamentations. It was written by an unknown author in response to the Babylonian invasion and destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., And the author writes a series of five poems in response to those events, to a community that had so much potential and was at the center of the known world at the time, but ultimately experienced significant destruction. And over the course of five poems, he encourages us to brace a biblical mode or pattern of prayer known as lament where we look and we lament to God and cry out in the pain and reality of what happens when a community descends to the bottom and experiences the sort of destruction that Jerusalem experienced. What we're going to see today in chapter 4 
and what I hope you'll kind of walk away remembering a little bit, is that what we see in chapter 4 is that without God, people perish. But lamenting ruin leads us to return. When we actually embrace lament in the places where there's ruin and destruction, when we learn how to embrace this mode of prayer and come to God out of that place, we actually can learn to return. Chapter 4 brings us back to a familiar place within the story and within the book of Lamentations. It actually begins with a key word that we've looked at earlier in chapters 1 and 2. You can see it, actually it happens twice, right at the beginning. So look with me at the text in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. Now that word how, we've learned earlier in the series, is rooted in the Hebrew word echad. And the Hebrew word echad is actually the name of the book in the Hebrew Bible. And it's a, the, the word that we translate how is both a statement and a question all wrapped into one. It, it's a way in which we come questioning God when we experience the challenging events of life. It's also an exclamation of pain out of those moments. And in the first two chapters of Lament, the first two poems that we encounter, how is the first word that begins those chapters. And in the narrative of the book, the author struggles to wrestle with the events that transpired in 587. And in chapter 1, he likens the city of Jerusalem to a mourning widow. He calls her Lady Zion. And he asks God, how could this happen to your city, to your people? In chapter 2, he again laments the destruction, going to God and recognizing that because of the sin of the people, it felt like God had become an enemy against his own people. And again, the author asked the question, how? In chapter 3, we experience a turn that happens within the poetic structure. Hope emerges for the first time. And in the midst of the struggle and the pain of lamentations, the author brings us and reminds us of God's character, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never fail. That God does not afflict from his heart, but that he loves his people. But in chapter 4, he takes us from that pinnacle in the book, from that mountain, and he descends back into the valley of the pain of his people, and he once again asks the question, how? And I think it's important. It's important to see this in the journey, not only of lamentations, but our own lament, that the response to the reality of the pain, injustice, and suffering of life that comes because of the brokenness and sin in the world is not just a linear reality. We don't just find hope and then everything is perfectly okay now. But oftentimes in the journey of our own suffering, we find ourselves in a place where we're both carrying hope and pain simultaneously. Lamentations is contrary to our Hollywood way of thinking where pain is just momentary and one just moves on from the massive painful realities of life. If you've ever been through significant suffering in your own life and you've found hope, you know 
that doesn't just erase the pain. That oftentimes you have to develop and find a new normal in which both hope exists, so you do not move towards despair, but you also continue to feel the struggle of pain and suffering within your own soul. The thing I love about Lamentations is that it deals with the raw reality that we experience when we suffer, that we hold these truths, both lament and suffering and pain, alongside hope and trust in God. And that is what the author does. He looks back now into the ruin of Jerusalem, holding hope, but still recognizing the pain and asking the questions, what can we learn from the ruin of God's people in this situation? I think there's three things that we see in this chapter, and as we unpack it, that you're going to see that the author encourages us to learn when it comes to experiencing the ruin of Jerusalem under the siege of Babylon. The first thing we see is that ruin reveals extraordinary suffering to the point where precious people become worthless. Listen to the author as he describes in these first 10 verses the reality of the ruin in Jerusalem. He says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed, The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. He's lamenting the destruction of the beauty and wealth of the city. The precious sons of Zion, now he turns its attention to its people, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. That the suffering is so bad that people feel like they're worthless. He continues, even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. The destruction of Jerusalem was so heinous, and the famine during the siege of warfare, that literally mothers were unable to provide for their kids. He likens that reality to two more unclean animals in the Jewish thinking. That of the jackal, which was not viewed as a pry, as a good animal, and that of the ostrich, which Job referenced as the sort of bird that abandons its eggs and its young. And he essentially says they were better at caring for their kids than even those that were charged with caring for the kids during the time of the siege. That infants were dehydrated and starving. If he could paint a picture, it would be the images we've seen of starving children with swollen bellies and exposed rib cages. That's how terrible the suffering was in Jerusalem during this time. Not only that, he continues, the wealthy began to experience the downturn. Look at verse 5. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple, a symbol of royalty, embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. It was so bad in Jerusalem that he even says Sodom, which in the Old Testament is a symbol of a godless city that experienced God's judgment, says that it was easier for Sodom than Jerusalem because their judgment at least was in a moment where Jerusalem's lingered and was prolonged. He continues, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. 
Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Through these verses, you feel the weight and the gravity of the destruction and ruin that these people experienced. Their way of life, even their lives themselves, were utterly destroyed in this season. And the author does not excuse or look away from the pain and suffering that they experienced. He does not shy away from it. He holds it out and acknowledges it and shows how ruin actually reveals the suffering and reality of people. And he wants us to look deeply into the suffering of Jerusalem that was given. Lamentations, in part, is both a way in which the author expresses the pain of the reality, but it is also written for subsequent generations as a warning to say, when we turn from God, there is suffering that can be endured, and to call us back to the way of God, to not continue to walk in the path of injustice or unrighteousness or sinfulness because it leads to the suffering of people. And so it both reminds us of that suffering and warns us about our own unrighteousness. And it's why lament is important. Lament leads us to look full go at the reality of the suffering that exists because of the brokenness in the world. One of the things that I find powerful within this story is that the author simply does not try to coat over or minimize the suffering that happened. He instead invites us time and time again to look at it with deep personal language because he knows it's only then that we'll recognize the reality of the brokenness of our world and begin to turn from God. You see, I think oftentimes in our modern world, we inoculate ourselves from real suffering. We might glimpse at it. We might catch a moment in our mind. But what often happens is as soon as it comes, we turn from it. We don't want to think too deeply about the suffering that has existed or does exist in our world. We're really good at trying to mask it over. But because of that, when we don't learn to lament the rawness of suffering and the reality of its presence in the world, oftentimes we fall into patterns of repeating mistakes and not turning fully to embrace the way of the Lord. I was reminded about the importance of really lamenting over extraordinary suffering, even over the course of this past weekend, because I think it's, uh, it's an important thing that we as a culture need to continue to learn to embrace. And so this weekend we celebrated Juneteenth for the first time as a federal holiday. It's been celebrated in African-American communities for years, but this is the first time we've celebrated as a federal holiday. And as I was reflecting on this weekend, I was actually reflecting a little bit on, on these words of an experience in my own life that happened just a couple months ago. And 
a few months ago, my family and I got to uh, travel down uh, with my wife's family to visit Washington, D.C. And while we were in Washington, D.C., we got to go down to Mount Vernon, the home of George Washington, and, and spend time there one morning. And it was the first significant time that I got to kind of uh, travel uh, to a historic site like this with my adopted daughter. For uh, those of you that don't know, I have two biological boys, 12 and 9, and then I have an adopted daughter who's 23, and she's African-American. And so we went and traveled to this site, and we spent the day walking around. And if you go to Mount Vernon, they do a really actually great job of both highlighting the reality of George Washington's life, but they actually do a really good job of honoring kind of the enslaved people that uh, were there in Mount Vernon under Washington. And while we walked around together as a family, I felt, and I'll openly admit to my shame, I felt the tension at times, right, to not sit in the reality of the suffering that happened. But as I walked with my daughter, it gave me new lenses and new conversations. And it helped me continue to be reminded that lament is such an important role because lament allows us to look at suffering deeply, to acknowledge the suffering that existed, and then to turn from it, to seek to follow righteousness and justice and what God calls us to be. One of the things I have found in my own work in pursuing racial justice and racial reconciliation is that lament is a significant part of the process because lament allows us to look deeply at the injustice of our society, to recognize the suffering that took place, and then to turn and say, how can we pursue paths of justice in our own life and righteousness in our own reality? Lamentations invites us, lament invites us not to turn from extraordinary suffering, not to move away from it because it makes us feel uncomfortable, but to actually lean in and say, what is it I need to learn from this so that I can begin to live the way God desires for me to live in my place, in my time, and what God calls us to. So while ruin reveals extraordinary suffering, when we lament it, it actually teaches us invaluable lessons. If we're to be a community that can bring hope to a broken world, we must be comfortable embracing the extraordinary suffering that exists in our world, wherever we find it. Don't look away from the suffering of people. Don't run from it. Run to it, because God has lessons in that place for us too. But there's a second thing that ruin reveals that we see in this passage. Look with me at verse 11. It says, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Lamentations is clear over and over and over again that Jerusalem is experiencing the suffering and destruction because they had turned from God. And though God had warned them time and time and time again, they perpetuated their sin and injustice and unrighteousness. And finally, at one point, God says, I cannot continue to allow the injustice of my people to continue. And God steps in in judgment. And they faced the wrath of God. He judged them for their sinfulness and their wickedness. And what was the reason for God's judgment? 
Well, he points to one specifically in the passage. Look at verse 13. He says, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away! Unclean people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. You see, ruin not only reveals extraordinary suffering, but ruin often reveals unrighteous leadership, where idolatrous leaders lose God's protection. What we see as God brings and recognizes the ruin of destruction and points towards what led to this place. Well, it was the unrighteousness of their leaders. Those that were entrusted in the community to minister on God's behalf had turned from God's ways. Prophets, those that were meant to minister God's word, had turned and become defiled. Priests who were to minister God's presence had turned from God him. So much so that their sins were so great that it says they shed the blood. They murdered the righteous. That's how bad the leadership in Jerusalem had gotten, where they were literally taking out the good people. That's how bad the leadership had become. And because of that, it says the Lord turned from them. He scattered them where no one would help them. You see, what Lamentations remind us is that ruin often comes when unrighteous and idolatrous and ungodly leadership has taken hold. And God will give his warning. He will bring his true prophets. But at some point, if we don't recognize it and turn from it, God will bring his judgment. You see, lament allows us to grieve over the unrighteousness that can happen in leadership and to turn from God when we've experienced that. But where we experienced ruin, we should ask questions and say, is there unrighteousness presence? And if there is, we must turn from that unrighteousness because where there are unrighteous leaders, it leads to ruin and destruction. I'll be blatantly honest that I think in many ways we're experiencing this reality amongst the Western evangelical church, specifically in our nation and America. Over the last year, if not more, we have watched and seen and exposed the failures and the unrighteousness of key leaders in the church at large whether it's Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, James McDonald, Mark Driscoll, Carl Lentz, the names go on and on of leaders that we have seen fallen and perpetuate unrighteousness. Worse, we hear stories of whole denominations turning blind eyes to sexual abuse and realities within their denomination of not dealing with it. Not only that, we see the suppression of those who try to bring out the truth and righteousness. We see abused women silenced, children who've experienced horrendous things questioned 
their testimony diminished. And what's interesting when you read through these stories is you recognize that in almost every situation there was unrighteousness that at some point was overlooked. That there were signs. There was pride. There was domination. There were all sorts of things that were overlooked but at some point became exposed. And I wonder that maybe part of what we're seeing happen in the evangelical world in the West is partially because we've been more than happy to celebrate celebrities and to prize worldly leadership over actually holding up authenticity, godliness, holiness, and righteousness. That we've allowed unrighteousness to perpetuate and come within the church because if you speak well, and lead well will excuse your bad behavior. And when that happens, when unrighteousness is found amongst the leader, at some point it will expose and lead to ruin. We have to recapture the essence of holding up the moral character and holiness of our leaders above their talent in the church. And I say that to myself. I don't care how good a sermon I preach, if I have bad character, it doesn't matter. And you might be thinking, you don't even preach good sermons, so. <laughs> but seriously, when you look at 1 Timothy, when you look at Titus, the list of qualifications for an elder of a church all have to do with character. It all has to do with how they live and the example they are for the community. And I say that to myself, right? I'm not putting myself on a pedestal here. I say that humbly. If righteousness does not exist amongst the leadership of the church, we will fall into ruin. We will be exposed. I'm thankful that we serve at a church that holds that considerably and strives for righteousness amongst its leaders. And you should expect that of me as well. But when we've experienced that, when unrighteous leadership is revealed, how do we respond? Well, we lament we cry out to God. We ask the questions of how. And when we do that, what it will do is it will cause us to look to the right place of leadership, which is Jesus. There is no perfect prophet. There is no perfect priest. There is no perfect elder. There is no perfect king apart from Jesus Christ alone. He is the true leader of his church. First Peter says he is the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor. And if you've been hurt by leadership in the church, my encouragement is, yes, lament the pain of that. Lament the sin of sinful leaders, but look to Christ. He is the only true leader, and any leader worth his salt stakes his righteousness in Christ, not in his own perfection. Lament allows us to recognize unrighteous leadership and then turn our attention to where it belongs, to Christ. And then let us look for leaders that display true humility, authenticity, and righteousness. Look for leaders to repent. No pastor is perfect, but do they repent over their sin and turn back to Christ? Let those be the things that mark the community of God's people today, unlike the way they did not mark the community of God's people back then. And then finally, as he closes this chapter, he reminds us that ruin while it reveals some uncomfortable realities like extreme suffering and unrighteous leadership, 
that ultimately ruin can be a path to return because ruin reveals hope. Because in the end, hope comes. Look how he ends this passage in verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Eden, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. The author ends this lament with words of hope. He begins with some ironic words of hope in a poem that explicitly deals with destruction and reality of ruin. He offers words in verse 21, Rejoice and be glad! But they're ironic words. And they're not pointed at God's people. They're pointed at a neighboring nation, the nation of Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, and they were one of Israel's greatest enemies. They attacked them often and often stood opposed to the nation. And what we know of Edom in reality to Jerusalem's destruction in 587, we see in the prophet Obadiah that when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, the Edomites not only just rejoiced in the downfall of the city, they took advantage of it and seized the wealth of Israel and part of it for themselves and then assisted in helping the fleeing population be captured so they could be taken away to Babylon. They were enemies that stood opposed to God's people even in the midst and contributed to the suffering of God's people. And they're told to be rejoice and be glad. Why? Because they will experience the cup, a symbol of God's wrath. And their sin, as he says, he will punish. You see, one of the reasons that we can have hope even in the midst of ruin is the reality that God will judge his enemies. God stands radically opposed to injustice and unrighteousness. And while he tempers his wrath so there can be repentance, there will come a day where God will visit his judgment upon those that stand opposed him and perpetuate sin and justice and unrighteousness in the world. And if you suffer ruin because of unrighteousness and injustice, take heart, one day God will vindicate. It's not on you to vindicate, Romans tells us. God will vindicate. He will vindicate injustice. Hold fast, trust him. One day he will come against his enemies and those that ruin his good world. But not only will God judge his enemies, we can have hope because God will restore his people. That's what he says in 21. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, it's accomplished. It's finished. And God will keep you in exile no longer. Remember the words of Lamentations 3. God does not afflict from his heart. But Hebrews tell us the Lord disciplines those he loves. That sometimes he allows his apparent people to experience affliction so he can draw them back to them himself. When we become wayward, when we put our trust in other things other than him, when we become comfortable pursuing the things of the world and making idols out of created things, God sometimes allows us and gives us over to that place 
so that we might see how empty they are and he might draw us back to himself. Yes, Israel experienced exile, but it was only temporary and ultimately God would restore. And it's when we learn to lament, ruin, we can see that God provides a path to return to him. That when we find ourselves at the bottom, when we find ourselves where we feel like we've descended into that valley, where unrighteousness perpetuates, where suffering exists, that God has made a way ultimately to return to him. And it's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because it was in Christ that God took the punishment for our iniquity. While Israel received the punishment for their sin, you and I don't have to receive our punishment because Christ received it on our behalf. And when we trust in him, we can know not the judgment of God, but the love of God, the eternal, never-ending love of God. And though we might experience affliction in this life, we can know that God's love is never-ending. One of my favorite moments of hope in the whole book comes in verse 11 of chapter 4. It's easy to miss what the author does here. But look how he starts again, this simple verse. He says, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. Now that word, right, that we translate full vent is also used in another verse in Lamentations. It's used in Lamentations 3.22 where it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You see, God pours out his punishment temporarily on his people in the book of Lamentations. But it comes to an end. Yes, it's horrible, but it stops at some point. But you know what doesn't stop? His mercy and his love. Those never stop. And it's in Christ Jesus that we get to experience the hope and the reality and satisfaction that our hearts are ultimately looking and longing for. So if you're in that place this morning where you come in in the place of ruin, you feel like, man, I am at the bottom. I don't even know where to go. Man, know that there's hope in Christ Jesus. And that when you embrace him, God can step into your life and he can turn things around. That there is a path to return. And I remember being in that place. And I know some of you do too. I remember as a freshman in college being in that place of ruin where chasing after the things of the world left me, not knowing which way was up, right, down, almost failing out of school, relationships destroyed and destructed and feeling like, what on earth is going on? But it was in that place that Jesus called and said, I'm actually the thing you're looking for You see, sometimes God leads us to the bottom so we can recognize that there's nothing in this earth that can satisfy quite like him. That he is our true hope. As he says in Lamentations 3, he is our portion. 
And so let us embrace lamenting ruin because when we do, it leads us to return to Christ. He's the one we trust. He's the one we need. May today be a day where you recognize the thing maybe you've been looking for all along is him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love. Thank you that you, Jesus, took the punishment for our sin. That although we might experience affliction and ruin in this life, we can know it's only temporary. And that ultimately, it's for our good to lead us and return us back to God. Thank you that you're a God of restoration. That you don't leave us there, but you meet us there to lead us to the place that you want to take us. And so God, I pray this morning for anyone that finds themselves in that place of ruin, that you would help them in this moment to see Christ as the answer they've been looking for all along. They've tried, they've seen the things of this world time and again, they've been left devastated. And right there, God, is where you want to show them that there's someone else that is the answer, the hope that their soul longs for. And so I pray, even as we prepare to sing this song, that you would help them to see the hope of the gospel. I pray that for all of us, that you would remind us of your goodness, that in Christ our sins are forgiven, that in Christ we're redeemed, that in Christ, ruin is not the end of the story, but restoration is. So even as we worship, Holy Spirit, would you just work in this moment to reveal Jesus to each one of our hearts and minds and to help us continue to place our trust more fully in him. Work now. We invite you to do so in your holy, precious name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.